Hey, deserving listeners. Today it's just me, and I'm going to be talking about the new movie called Marriage Story. A lot of people have been asking me to talk about this because it has a lot to do with psychology, personality, relationships, marriage, divorce, conflict, personality, disorders, attachments. So I thought I would, I would get into it in detail. But first, let me say this. This movie hits home for a lot of people. Most people have been at least through a breakup, if not through a divorce, if not through a divorce with children. I've been with many people as they go through this in my clinical work. I sort of specialize in this sort of work. Uh, I'm a marriage and family therapist, so uh, I, we're, we're beginning to actually rebrand ourselves as relational therapists, so we're very, very much interested in relationships and attachment and love and sex and conflict. And throughout my 20 plus years as a therapist, for whatever reason, uh, partially because of my own professional interests and also partially because of just becoming known for it, I have uh, attracted a lot of clients who are suffering from this. It's a very common uh, scenario where a couple will come to me saying they are on the verge of divorce or for an individual adult to come to me and say that they're thinking about divorce or for a person to come into me just having gone through a divorce or just having gone through a breakup or something like this. And so there's a lot of pain and suffering that goes through, uh, you know, people's lives as they go through this. And it's a part of our Society and experience that we don't talk about that much. Uh, divorce rates are, you know, you hear this 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 statistic: fifty percent of all marriages end in divorce. I believe, from my memory, that that statistic is a little misleading because it includes uh, people who get married and divorce several times. So, if you look at the first marriages, the rate of first marriages ending in divorce. Uh, then, because first marriages are the least likely to end in divorce, right? If you're on your third marriage, you're much more likely to have it end in divorce than if it's your first marriage, if that makes any sense. And so, it's something, but it's still pretty high. It's it's between like maybe forty percent of people go through a divorce. Uh, you know, forty percent of marriages end in divorce. So. Uh, it's a such a common issue, and yet we hardly ever talk about it. We hardly ever have movies about it. You know, for every million rom-coms, there's one movie like this that talks about, like, well, you realize all those rom-coms are talking about the beginning of a relationship, and uh, here's what happens at the end, you know, for, for so many people. And I think that it's a sympathetic, empathetic view of what it's like to go through. You know, it's just so rough. And in some ways, this movie doesn't, uh, portray it fully, I think, because it, the movie actually is trying to make it entertaining. <laughs> and the movie is great. You know, if you haven't seen Marriage Story, you might think, oh, my God, it's about divorce. It sounds awful. It has some some very uh, heart wrenching moments. But overall, it's it's kind of it kind of plays like a rom com at times. But it's funny. There's. Uh, you just sort of see the procedural of a divorce go down and it just it, there's just all these foibles that happen. It's it's a very entertaining movie, but it does have a lot of difficulty in it, in it too. Um, it's just so hard. You know, people, they they wake up one day and they're just like, 
I think I'm done with this relationship. And then they probably end up in therapy with someone like me. And then it's years and years of talking about it before they even do anything about it because it's such a big decision, especially when you have kids. Anyway, so I think it's a good movie to talk about. Uh, just a little, some other details here. There's definite Oscar buzz. Uh, I think it's no mistake that the producers released this movie in December, which is prime time to uh, you know ride the wave of Oscar buzz heading into Oscar season. I could I could easily see it being nominated for Best Picture, Screenplay, Director, Actor, Actress. Rotten Tomatoes, 95%, which is really high. Uh, Saturday Night Live did a, spoot, a spoof of it uh, soon after it was released. The, instead of, you know, the couple in the movie, it's Charlie and, and Nicole, but Saturday, Saturday Night Live did Kellyanne Conway and her husband, you know, like a marriage story. There's been some controversy around it. You know, people are chiming in about their opinions. They're saying, oh, you know, uh, Scarlett Johansson, Nicole's character, wasn't portrayed sympathetically enough. And other people are saying, no, no, it's pretty balanced. You know, because as you watch this, you see this conflict play out between these these two uh, characters, Nicole and Charlie. And it's natural as the story progresses to think, okay, who do I identify with? Who do I side with? That kind of thing. So as we go into this, uh, there's going to be some spoilers because uh, I have to talk about the movie if I'm going to analyze these characters. But the movie isn't really spoilable because it, it right from the start, from the first scene, you realize they're going through a divorce. So that's no spoiler. And there aren't really any plot twists. It's just, um, uh, you know, a story of people as they go through a divorce. So, um so, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I made a little list here of movies that actually do address divorce and, and, and conflict of this kind. There's, there's a lot of movies. Actually, last night I went to see the Mrs. Doubtfire musical at the Fifth Ave in Seattle. Highly recommend. You, would th- you know, I'm not a huge Mrs. Doubtfire movie fan. It came out when I was, I think, in my 20s. So it's not one of those movies that, you know, holds a... Uh, place in my heart the way that say you know Empire Strikes Back does or something <laughs> but uh, but that's a movie that's about divorce right and and how hard it can be uh, other movies that sort of classics that I thought of off the top of my head Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf Elizabeth Taylor Richard Burton it's not necessarily about divorce but it feels like it's about divorce <laughs> it feels like they're headed towards divorce Interiors, Woody Allen. There was a time when Interiors was one of my favorite movies of all time. I remember seeing it in the 90s and just thinking like, oh my God, like how come no one's talking about this movie? Kramer versus Kramer, of course, with Meryl Streep and Dustin Hoffman. If you're old enough like me, you remember that being a pretty seminal movie of the time. The Breakup, which I think isn't referred to enough. Jennifer Anderson, Vince Vaughn. Revolutionary Road, again, not about divorce, but definitely feels like it's about divorce. Leonardo DiCaprio, Kate Winslet. The, and as I, and The Squid and the Whale, which was also written and directed by Noah Baumbach, which you know is the same person who wrote and directed Marriage Story. The thing, as I go over this um, list of the you know these powerhouses of movies about divorce, I'm realizing right now how these these uh the best actors of uh, you know of the modern era are represented here i mean elizabeth taylor and richard burton 
and weren't they they were married in real life too right um meryl streep and dustin hoffman i mean whoa uh, Jennifer Aniston, Vince Vaughn, I don't know. Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet from Titanic fame make another, you know, where it's just rom-com, action movie, blah, 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 and then Revolutionary Road where it's just, I mean, if you've seen that movie, wow. So that's interesting. Um, so again, before I go into talking about the psychologist, I just want to talk a little bit about the background of this movie because I, I think it's interesting. So Noah Baumbach, and I think I'm pronouncing his name right, Noah Baumbach, um, and Je- is the guy who wrote and directed this movie. Well, so Jennifer Jason Lee was his wife, his first wife, I believe. And uh, so a little bit about Noah Baumbach. He, uh, he's been a prolific writer, director, a lot of great movies, but just some highlights. Going back to 1995, he did Kicking, Kicking and Screaming, wrote and directed. I remember watching this when I was 24, 25 years old, and it really spoke to me. I think Noah Baumbach is a very similar age to me, if I'm not mistaken. And his movies have kind of tracked that. <laughs> uh, 2004, he wrote with Wes Anderson, Life Aquatic. He also helped uh, with Wes Anderson write Fantastic Mr. Fox, two of my favorite movies. Again, going back to Squid in the Whale, 2005, wrote and directed, nominated for Best Original Screenplay Oscar. It's basically, so in this, Squid in the Whale is semi-autobiographical about him as a kid, I believe, as his parents are going through a divorce. And then he makes a semi, so the the, the marriage story, this movie that I'm going to talk about is also semi-autobiographical. Um, it's not... You know, he's been, he said, no, it's it's not really about my life, but it's informed by it. Let's just put it that way. Uh, 2010, he he wrote and directed Greenberg with his wife, uh, Jennifer Jason Lee. He Jennifer Jason Lee. So just her, uh, if you don't know her, she she was in Fast Times. She was the lead, you know, uh, actress in Fast Times, Regiment High. She was in Backdraft. She's been in billions of movies, but she was in Backdraft, Rush, Single White Female, Hudsucker Prog- Proxy, Existence. Uh, again, Greenberg. She, you know, also wrote and produced it. Spectacular. Now she plays a mom, and you might have remembered her most recently in The Hateful Eight. She plays Daisy Domergu. But anyway, so Noah Baumbach and Jennifer Jason Lee. You know, Noah Baumbach, this writer-director, Jennifer Jason Lee, this this actress, and they're in this power couple, and the movie, Marriage Story, is about that. It's about a director and an actress. So then we get to 2010, Noah Baumbach makes Greenberg, again, Jennifer Jason Lee helping write it, and they cast Greta Gerwig to play the lead actress, and again, ben, it's Ben Stiller and Greta Gerwig are in this movie. Well, around this time, Jennifer Jason Lee files for a divorce. So in Marriage Story, if you've watched it, you remember that there's a director, Charlie, who has an affair with one of the uh, people who is working with him on, on the theater company. While he And then soon after that, he gets a divorce, and it's sort of a motivating factor in the divorce with his, with his actress wife. Well, the speculation, and I don't know, maybe there are articles actually talking about this, is that... You know, Jennifer Jason Lee, Noah Baumbach working together on Greenberg. There's this younger actress who comes on into the team and Greta Gerwig and maybe Noah Baumbach had an affair or they had a burgeoning romance. Boom, Jennifer Jason Lee gets a divorce. And then Noah Baumbach and Greta Gerwig are now married. 
You might know Greta Gerwig because she wrote and directed Lady Bird, and she also wrote, wrote and directed the most recent Little Women. So, uh, you know, that's sort of interesting. And then Noah Baumbach went to direct uh, and write a movie uh, with Greta Gerwig, Francis Ha, and Greta Gerwig starred in that as well. Uh, Noah Baumbach also did While We're Young and, again, Marriage Story. Anyway, so I just thought it was kind of an interesting story. I hope that was worth it. Anyway, so before I go into the personalities, I want to talk about the divorce. But before we do that, let's take a break. Yeah. All right, we're back from the break. If you haven't become a patron yet, do so now. Go to patreon.com. If you just had to suffer through some commercials, when you become a patron, you don't have to listen to any commercials anymore. That's how much we love our patrons. Okay. So divorce. Very typical divorce process presented in Marriage Story. Uh, Not, you know, universal by any means. There's a million ways to divorce. But uh, this is, you know, one common scenario, I would say. In that, they, Charlie and Nicole, start off amicable, but tense. There's definite tension, but, you know, they, they've decided they didn't fight a lot as a couple and they're not really fighting a lot during the divorce at the beginning. They're just like, well, you know, we don't have a lot of money and we both love our son and we both respect each other as parents and we both still, you know, have affection for each other. So we don't want to destroy each other's lives. There's no point doing that. So let's, you know, let's go to a mediator and let's just work this out like civilized human beings. So, you know, there wasn't much to argue about in the beginning. But then, you know, little tensions start to build. The main tension throughout the movie, which I thought was sort of geniusly laid out in that the, you know, Nicole, she wants to move or they they have moved. Nicole has moved with her son, with their son to Los Angeles because she got on a TV show. Noah, meanwhile, is back in New York with his theater company. And Noah expects uh, that, you know, her, Nicole, and the son will move back to New York, even if they get divorced. But Nicole is there with her mother and her sister, and she's with her new TV show, and it gets picked up eventually, and blah, blah, blah. So she kind of needs to be in L.A. a lot, and she likes it out there. That's where she grew up, and she always wanted to go back there throughout the marriage. But, you know, for the past 10 years, they've been living in New York, and that's where they raised the kid, and that's where the kid went to school, and blah, blah, blah. And so there's this tension around that of just like, well, but we're a New York family, according to, you know, what Charlie is saying. And Nicole is saying, but we now live in Los Angeles, you know, you know, okay, fine. We were a New York family, but now we are a Los Angeles family. You're free to move here or visit here. Very common scenario in divorce situations because uh, one factor is that, you know, we live in a highly mobile uh, society in the United States, people will get jobs. You know, particularly if you're in the entertainment business, where you have to travel, particularly to New York, Los Angeles, that kind of thing, and uh, or for tech jobs, or for military, or you know, you're, you're just getting shipped around. Well, when you go through a divorce, one of the things that you, you you want is you want your team, you want your support system. And for Nicole, her support system was in Los Angeles, plus her jobs in Los Angeles. And so it was just totally logical for her to relocate to Los Angeles. The other thing is that she wants her son to be with her. And 
she wouldn't mind if Charlie also moved there, but you know, she, um, she, so, so, so anyway, she, you know, she's like, Los Angeles is where my support system is. I need a change. I need to get away. You know, um, this is where my job is. And you'll see situations like this happen all the time. Normally we as individuals are free to move wherever we want to. Even if we have kids, we're just like, well, let's move. But we usually work with our spouse on this, right? But when you're going through a divorce, you suddenly have this totally different scenario where you have to ask your ex-spouse if it's okay for you to move. You know, it's this really weird scenario. The other thing is, is if there's a conflict around that, technically speaking, if you can't resolve that conflict, the the government has to get involved in your decision-making process of when or if you can even move. And that's a very, that's a, that's a quite a, that's a big leap for a lot of people to uh, jump. It's like, so wait a second, I can't just move or wait, my wife, my ex-wife can just move across the country with my child and I can't do anything about that. That's my child. It's my child. Well, of course, to the wife, she's saying, well, it's my child, too. And so everything gets fucked up (laughs) like it just and there's no easy answer, because, again, if you were married, you would have that conflict uh, amongst yourself and resolve it before, you know, before before you decided to do anything. But when you're divorced, it's just like these things happen. You know, a lot of these Amber Alerts are related to this kind of thing where. Someone's just like, you took my kids. Well, I'm going to take my kids back. And then they, you know, technically kidnap their own kids because it's it's not officially in congruence with the parenting plan. And, and you now are, are a fugitive of the law and your children are being blasted all over televisions and cell phones across America. If you're not familiar with Amber Alert in a different country, it's where an alert goes out that a child has been kidnapped. And I believe it was named after a girl named Amber who was abducted years ago. Anyway, so it um, it's a very stressful time, and the movie lays it out pretty well. And it's the central, you know, conflict that keeps the story going and for marriage story in the movie. So then you get a lawyer. You know, you, you go, okay, well, um, I've been told I should get a lawyer, and uh, you know, it makes sense. And this is logical because. It's actually kind of hard to go through a divorce without a lawyer because there's these legal things you have to fill out. You can get married without a lawyer. You still have to fill out things like marriage licenses and, you know, these kinds of things. But to go through a divorce, uh, there there have to be certain things have to get filed and, you know, motions and, you know, I don't know what it forms. And and typically uh, regular humans can't navigate that in the United States. You you need to get at least someone who knows what they're doing. And usually it's a paid service. It can be a lawyer or it can just be a legal expert who, who knows how to do that thing. But, but especially if you're in a situation where you're like, look, I'm running into a pretty big conflict with my uh, ex-spouse here. And um, you know what? I, I need to get some legal advice, especially if you feel like you're the person in the relationship that didn't have a voice. And this is portrayed very well in this movie, too. Nicole has always felt like she didn't have a voice. Nicole was the actress. Charlie was the director-writer. 
Charlie would give her notes, you know, and, you know, criticize and control her acting. And Nicole would look up to uh, Noah slash Charlie. You know, how did I do in in the play? You know, what should I, you know, so there's a, uh, Charlie was more dominant. He was more opinionated. He was more sure of himself. Nicole wasn't, I'll get into the personality later, but anyway, so Nicole has a big reason to get a lawyer because she has a hard time speaking up for herself. She she suffers, you know, with assertiveness and or, you know, her assertiveness is a little lacking. And she also doesn't trust Charlie to listen. And so she's like, look, I need to get a lawyer. So she gets a lawyer. So there are lawyers that specialize in divorce and there are lawyers that specialize in what we call collaborative divorce. Most lawyers specialize in divorce, meaning that um, they do – it's their job. You hire them, and it's, and it's their job ethically to fight for you, to, ad, you know, to advocate for you, right? And to advocate for you means that they might have to attack the other side. To win the battle, that, must, that means they have to uh, make the other person's case less credible, less compelling, they have to drum up evidence for their positions. And one of the common fighting points is, I want more rights over the child than you get. And how do you drum up evidence around that? Well, you call the other parent a bad parent. So lawyers, it's their job. Now, people that are oh, lawyers are scumbags, you know, you know, there's a lot of jokes that I remember growing up with in the 90s and the 80s about, you know, um, how many lawyers is it screwing a light bulb, you know, and they'd be like, it doesn't matter. I wish they were all dead or <laughs> just sort of jokes like that. And and but, you know, that misses the point. Lawyers uh, in working in that field are ethically bound to fight for you. That's their job. It's like faulting a police officer for um, being, you know, running into a building where there's a robbery going on or something, you know, it's their job. It's, it's, it's what we hire them to do. But there are other kinds of lawyers called collaborative divorce lawyers. And these lawyers are, uh, they have a different, they're lawyers, but they have a different um, set of ethics and guidelines I won't go into it. You, you, have, you can actually go back to my archive. I've done at least a couple episodes on collaborative divorce. Uh, divorce. I think one's called collaborative divorce and one's called divorce or how to divorce or something. And it's with my friend Joe Schaub, who actually uh, does collaborative divorce. So these people in, in, a, in general are lawyers and other professionals who are uh, – they try to help the couple go through a divorce – you know, do all the normal things, but their but their um, overall calling is to not have the couple hate each other in the end, and also to help them to negotiate, not to attack the other side. But most lawyers don't do this kind of work, and so uh, when you hire a lawyer, which you know is portrayed in this movie uh, with Laura Dern. Um, that's their job, you know, and, and it's, it's, you know, no big deal. It's just, it's just what they do. Having been, you know, side by side with a lot of couples as they go through this, I can tell you that the lawyers, you know, they're, they're not, they don't wake up in the morning and be like, I want to be a dick today. They're just like, I'm going to do a good job for my client. So, 
Um, so that's what happens in the movie, very typical. And then, you know, the maneuvering starts to happen. And again, if you've been through a divorce like this, I'm preaching to the choir. The letters, the writs, the attacks, the accusations that require now you got to get a lawyer and you have to because you don't know how to respond to that stuff. And now you have these two lawyers uh, fighting with each other. Now, everything that's communicated between the couple is through the lawyers. Uh, it's it's just this absurd process. <laughs> Again, from my standpoint as a therapist, I'm like, I've helped people work shit out. <laughs> like, that's what I do for a living. I have the couple sit down on my couch and I help them communicate and I help them work it out. And I watch these scenarios and I'm just like, it, it's the it's a recipe for disaster because you're resentful and angry and hurt. You're hurt, you know, baseline, because you're going through a divorce. It has a ton of hurts, sometimes very, very deep pain for people, particularly if there was a fair or they're being divorced when they didn't want to get divorced or something. And so a lot, there's a lot of pain and then a lot of consequent anger from that. And then you go to your lawyer and you say, you know, you're processing your feelings and your lawyer says, okay, well, let's use that. So they start attacking the other side. Well, now your lawyer tells you, well, so the other side, your ex-spouse is saying that, you know, you weren't a good parent and that you were drunk too often or you were very irresponsible or you weren't around that much. Well, now you're just like, not only is it hurtful to hear that, but these lawyers are talking shit about you as a parent. Well, that's very hurtful, too. And then you're and then you say, I need to talk to my ex-spouse and the lawyers are no, 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 don't. Don't talk to the, your ex-spouse because that's not going to help. Um, I need you to talk to me. And then the lawyers, and then you say, okay, well, I, we need to respond to this. And so the lawyer sends out, you know, so it just goes back and forth. Meanwhile, it costs tons of money. This is, none of this is free. Very expensive. And so, yeah, there's all this hurtful maneuvering going on, a lot of mudslinging. Uh, both sides think they're absolutely right. And I... This is the part that I learned professionally working with individuals. I guess I would learn it with couples too, but I would learn it with individuals. I would be um, working with an individual as they head to, to divorce and they have a lawyer. And they'd come into session and be like, uh, you know, so uh, uh, I'm a better parent. Uh, my lawyer agrees with me. Uh, you know, here's all the evidence. And I'm going to win this fight. And I'll tell my client, and I'll say, look, um, I'm not your lawyer, and I can't predict the future. But I'm here to tell you, just as a um, you know, friendly information, that I've been with a lot of people through divorces. And everyone always thinks they're right. Everyone always thinks that they have the righteous side, and the other side is obviously wrong. And there's, and there's nothing I'm hearing you say that is that convincing, is convincing enough that a judge will actually, you know, say that to you. Because there's this fantasy of like, okay, I'm going to go to court. I'm going to, my lawyer, you know, is behind me and we're going to lay out all this and for, you know, all this evidence and the, and the judge is going to stand up and, and, you know, give me a slow clap and say, oh my God. I have never heard of such an awful spouse and you deserve all the money and all the kids. What a wonderful 
human being you are and what an awful human being your ex-spouse is. And what I tell people is like, that's a fine fantasy, but it's not going to happen. What's going to happen is you're going to court, you're going to go to court if you do go to court. Uh, and both of you are going to walk away feeling like you didn't get what you wanted. So if you want to actually salvage your, your life, salvage your, your ongoing family, because if you have kids being divorced, you're still, you, you're still related to that person. You know, you, it's your ex-wife, it's your ex-husband, but it is the parent, it's the father or mother of your children that you are attached to for the rest of your life. You can you you ha, you you can end the marriage, great, but you do you cannot end the parenting, the co-parenting that you have to do, and so you can burn this whole thing down to the ground with nothing left but ashes, and you're two hundred thousand dollars in debt now. No joke, that's how much it could cost. Um, you know, like they even portray that in the in the movie. It's just like. Um, you know, several hundred dollars per hour, you know, three, four, five hundred dollars per hour for these lawyers. Um, or I think one lawyer said he was like a thousand dollars an hour or something. And that's not uncommon. So what I tell people is like, you have to figure out a way to work it out with your ex-spouse. If it's through the lawyers, great. But um, for your sake, for your pocketbook's sake, for your bank account's sake, but mainly for your kid's sake. Your kids need you to to work this shit out. They need you to to get along. They need you to not to burn this thing to the ground. And so I will, I'll do that even with people, uh, couples sometimes. So couples will sometimes come to me having already made the decision to divorce or maybe even in session, you know, even though we've done, you know, a lot of work over the span of time to improve their relationship. Uh, one or both of them is still like, yeah, you know, we've improved our relationship, but I I think I fell out of love with this person long ago. I don't want to be married anymore. And so I'll say, okay, well here, you know, and I'll lay it all out there and be like, I've been through, I've been through this process with a lot of people. Here are some guidelines. And it often involves me telling them something along those lines of just like, um, you know, before when you were going through conflict, you could kiss and make up. Now, when you go through conflict, moving into the future, now that you guys are getting divorced, you cannot kiss and make up or you can. And there's, you know, sometimes people will do that. They'll have dalliances, if you will, after divorce, but most people don't. And so you can't kiss and make up. So you have to find a way to, to deal with that conflict and to frame it in a way that doesn't cause you to downward spiral, to communicate effectively, to, uh, you know, care about each other, you know, to have affection for each other. Um, even though it might be really hard for you to do that anyway. So, yeah, so the movie portrays that pretty well. Um, one small detail about the movie that it just reminds me. So I used to do a lot of work in courts, um, in the past. I don't do much at all anymore, but I used to. And one of the things they portrayed in the movie pretty well is sitting on those uncomfortable benches outside of courtrooms, I just spend a lot of time on those uncomfortable benches. I, I, have, a, I have a suspicion that courthouses will purposely make benches uncomfortable so that people don't sit there for very long. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So the movie 
portrays these little moments where the parents start to disagree about parenting style, even though they're getting divorced. They start to compete for the child's affections a little bit. Uh, Money is getting tight. There's some hatred that starts to build up. Uh, The lawyers are getting more involved. The family is suffering. Then there's a parenting evaluation, which doesn't happen all the time for sure, but um, it can happen for sure. And they portrayed that in a – that was like a comedic thing that they did. They The, the evaluator was um, a very strange individual. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. Um, which again, once again, uh, you know, mental health professionals are are portrayed as uh, idiots or weird or unethical or something. You know, if they're not unethical, they're weird. You know, and out of touch. And so this was, you know, the sort of out of touch style of of professional. Um, again, lots of money in the movie. The mom's mom, Nicole's mom, takes out a second mortgage to to, and and in the end. It was a result that they could have worked out if they had just stuck with mediation. You know, the they could have worked this out, but the only the only thing that the lawyers and the courts and the parenting evaluation and all the time and pain and suffering, the only thing the only result that happened in the end was that Nicole got her way and got to have, you know, the kid and the family live in Los Angeles. They could have easily come to that result in mediation, especially if the mediator detected that Nicole had trouble with assertiveness and the mediator, you know, someone like me would have said, okay, if I don't do some, if I don't take some measures, Nicole's voice isn't going to be heard because she's going to shut down or she's not going to be sure of herself or Charlie's going to overpower her. And so, you know, let's work on that. Might take some time. Um, so, uh, so yeah. And then it's just this tremendous loss, you know, they, that they portray in the movie, the, the, the feelings of the loss of, and this is a very common, you know, thought people have. It's just like, I wasted my time with you. We're going through this divorce and I I just wasted all those years. I could have been doing all these other things or the feelings of I've lost my future. I had a whole future laid out of, you know, retiring one day and now I'm in debt and, and of us being a family and, you know, having grandkids come over for holidays and now it's like I'm a single dad living in a shitty apartment, working at two jobs to pay off, you know, this debt. And my and I'm ashamed of my house and my kids never want to come over. And it's it's just this huge loss of the future. The, fan, the, the movie Marriage Story portrays the trauma and the resentment that builds up over time. So... Uh, it's it just lays it all out there, and I, you know now that I think about it, what I it's a very popular movie. It's on Netflix. You know, it's one of those movies where they released it in theaters just so they could get it into the Oscars. But it's also it's mainly a Netflix movie, and it, the, and Netflix is definitely pushing it, <laughs> definitely trying to get everyone to watch it because I think you know they they're thinking Oscars, and so uh, and there's nothing more affirming for these sort of online platforms as to when they get an Oscar. But anyway, um, 
one of their movies gets an Oscar. But anyway, uh, what I hope is that people who are thinking about divorce or have not yet been divorced but may in the future will take this movie as a cautionary tale that under a lot of circumstances, you don't have to get lawyers or you could get collaborative lawyers or you could get lawyers and tell them, look, I, I don't want to fight. Or you could get one lawyer. I mean, that's that's what a lot of people will do is, you know, as they go through divorce, they'll hire one lawyer for the for the both of them. There's nothing wrong with that. Um you could still fight, but you don't have a lawyer that's fighting. You know, the lawyer's on both both sides. And so, uh, you know, it's more of the collaborative model. But anyway, I, I hope that this is a cautionary tale because so many families I have seen go through this uh, system of divorce, the legal system, and emerge on the other side way worse off as I've been going, you know, uh, as I've been talking about, but mainly, you know, it's, it's for the kids and for their relationship. This movie, they started out, they're like, yep, we're, we're breaking up, but we still care about each other. We still support each other. We, you know, I'm still, I'm still friends with your mom's, uh, your mom, your mom's mom. Um, I, you know, I'm, we're still integrated. Okay, maybe there's some boundaries that need to be made here. You know, some shifts, but we still respect each other. We still like each other. We're still happy for each other. But because they went into this normal divorce system, there was a time when it ends when they want to. They hate each other, and and Charlie even says that he wishes that she were dead. And it's just this tragedy. And yet we just keep doing it. I think it's for a number of reasons. One is because, you know, there's sort of an industry of divorce, which is dependent on people not sort of knowing the truth about divorce. Because if they knew the truth, they'd be like, oh, so, so if you just look at the outcomes, so let's look at the outcomes of, of uh, you know, this. It's not a, you know, universal story, but a common story. Well, the outcome, as I've been saying, the outcome is, Family is worth worse off, and the lawyers um, have you know three hundred thousand dollars more money. And the end result of the deal that the uh, couple had at the end could have easily been brokered uh, with with far less money. And and neither person feels good about having gone through the process. So who wins? Well, the lawyers do. <laughs> Now, again, it's not the lawyer's fault. You hired them. That's their job. You know, you hire a police officer. They're going to police officer. You hire a lawyer. You, ha- you know, they're going to advocate for you. So I'm not blaming the lawyers. I'm blaming the fact that we have a system uh, in our society where we don't educate people about what their options are and about what they're supposed to do. We, and we don't warn people effectively. You know, part of the warning is like, look, I know you think you're right, but you're the other person is also, quote unquote, right. And I know all your friends around you are telling you that you're right, but they have friends around them that are telling them that they're right. And I know you have a lawyer that says you're right, but your your ex-spouse also has a lawyer that says that they're right. Uh, your judge is not your lawyer. Your judge is the judge is not your friend. the The judge is is just going to hear the evidence and make a ruling. And Nine, 99 times out of 100, you are not going to be happy with what the judge says. 
Um, and judges, you know, just, you know, as I will frequently say, judge, you know, when you go to court, judges will make some strange ass rulings. I've seen judges in, in family court make some just bizarre rulings where everyone's angry. And it, it's just strange. So uh, you could actually say that in this uh, movie, the court mandating this parenting evaluation was a little strange. I mean, given the evidence that was presented anyway. So, so yeah, some other common issues that were presented in this movie. Um, one person is more into the divorce than the other person. That's quite common. Charlie being close to, to Nicole's family, the mom in particular, this is another part of divorce that isn't usually talked about. It's like, you know, when you, when you get married to someone, um, and particularly for someone like Charlie who grew up with parents they didn't really like from the sound of it, he really took to Nicole's family. And then as they go through divorce, what does that mean? Does Charlie still have that kind of relationship with his mother-in-law? Um, they portrayed how parents will have to parent together, but separate. They portrayed the serving of the papers. That was actually a pretty comedic scene, but that, you know, those kinds of things are, you know, the serve, the signing of the documents and the serving of the papers and the going to the court. It's just, it's this very traumatic thing for people. Um, noticing that the pictures have changed, you know, Charlie goes over to Nicole's house and notices that. It's actually Nicole's mom's house, but notices that the pictures have changed on the wall. You know, before family pictures included him, and now the family pictures don't include him anymore. Um, and then, of course, having your ex date other people. All uh, most people can identify with having gone through a breakup, and you know, intellectually, you're thinking, well, you know, they're probably dating other people, but you don't, you don't, you don't want it in your face. And this is why a lot of people will block people on Facebook or something because, you know, they don't want to see, they don't want to see, I guess is another reason why people stalk people on Facebook because they, they're curious and they're trying to see. But, you know, it's natural to have that be pretty painful to have, you know, for Charlie, Nicole, Nicole was the one who wanted out of the marriage. And because they're co-parenting, they have to, you know, they want to spend Halloween together. They don't want to have two Halloweens for the kids. So they spend Halloween as co-parents with the child and do the walking through the neighborhood. And uh, now Nicole is dating someone. And and now uh, Charlie has to hang out with this boyfriend of his ex-wife, whom he probably still loves. And what do you do with that? You know, it's 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 a it's a complicated world. So before going into the personality, I just want to talk about the divorce mediator. The very first scene in the movie is they're they're in a divorce mediation session. Now it's unclear what sort of divorce mediator this person is. They what sort of professional they could be. It could be a family, could be a couple and family therapist that had that feel to it. It also could just be someone who specializes in divorce mediation and they're they're not a clinical they don't have a clinical license. They're 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 essentially kind of like coaches, I guess you could say, but but they specialize in divorce medi- mediation. They could actually also be a lawyer. You you can be a lawyer in one context and in another context hired as a divorce mediator. But the person felt like a couple therapist to me, um the way that it was portrayed, but I don't know. 
and I'm not that familiar with the professionals in that world, so I could be wrong about that, but that's the feel I had. And it starts off, they just have one session, it looks like, and it or the very beginnings of, of a situation, um, in which they have, there's this intervention where the mediator asks both people to go home and write, you know, a statement of like, what I love about Charlie, what I love about Nicole, and then come back and they're going to read their statements to each other. It's a great intervention. I do this all the time. I don't do this all the time, but I've done this before. I do it in micro ways, like just boom, I'll just ask people, you know, why do do you love this person? Why did you fall in love with this person? It's an important thing to establish up front for a number of reasons. One, it creates goodwill, which makes it easier to mediate, right? Uh, The more hurt you are about someone, the less likely you are to give in on things. Because having been through this process with a lot of people, the the single most important thing, uh, the most important factors to success as couples go into mediation where they don't actually need lawyers attacking each other is each side has to agree that they have to give in. They have to negotiate. They have to accommodate. You cannot go into a divorce mediation process with the mindset of like, I'm not giving in. Here's my hard line in the sand, and that's that. I mean, unless your hard line in the sand is very reasonable, which it usually isn't, that's not going to work. So both sides have to accommodate the other. You know, like with Nicole and Charlie, for example, that might look like, um, you know, Noah, or I say Noah because that's the writer-director, Charlie has his theater company that he's built from scratch. It's very important to him. It's in New York City. But Nicole has this new job in Los Angeles. Okay. So both people and, and her family is in Los Angeles. Both people have very good reasons for wanting to live on opposite sides of the country. What are we going to do here? Well, if you didn't have a kid, then you could just move on. No big deal. But you have a kid. So where's the kid going to live? How are we going to work this out? Again, Nicole, with her issues of assertiveness, then the mediator would hopefully pick up on that and sort of help her out and also get Charlie to back off at times because he would notice that um, Nicole's starting to be shut down. And how do, we, how do we work this out? It's a tough one. Now, as a mediator, I'm not th- I don't know the answer to the question. I don't want to know the answer to the question. But what I do know is that when there's goodwill between the two of them, they're much more likely to figure out a solution. Now, what would that solution look like? I don't know. You know, uh, maybe they... Uh, Maybe the kid goes back and forth. It's not a great model, but, you know, it's possible. It's not a great model. <laughs> it's, it's not ideal. But it's, not, it's better than the child being neglected by one of the parents, right? We don't want the kid moving to one side of the country and never seeing the other parent. That's a big, we, that's a big problem. So that's, that's what we want to say is like the worst case scenario. Uh, a step up from that would be the kid goes back and forth. A step up from that is maybe Noah gets the kid for a certain amount of months while the play is um, in full swing and, and, and Charlie can't move away from New York. You know, when, when Charlie's doing a certain run of his play and he really needs to be in New York, maybe the kid's with Charlie during that time. 
and maybe Charlie gets someone else in his family to sort of help out with, with babysitting and this kind of thing. And then during other times, the kid goes to Los Angeles and Charlie has more freedom during those times where he can actually visit in Los Angeles more often. Uh, you know, for Nicole, she's shooting a TV show that can't be all year round. Maybe sometimes she brings a kid and herself to New York and uh, lives there for a few months. Um, you know, there's, there's accommodations that can be made. Or, as what happened in the movie, Charlie moves to Los Angeles and starts to work in theaters in Los Angeles. So, you know, there's a lot of different possibilities here, right? Um, and the only way you can sort of begin that negotiation process of, of giving in, because neither person is going to get what they want. What Charlie wants is for Nicole to disappear and for the kid to live with him. What Nicole wants is for Charlie to disappear and for, you know, or, or I guess, you know, that's a mean way of putting it, but they want to live in their respective cities and have the kid live there with them full time. Because they're parents and they love their kids and that's just what they want because that's natural. It's good that they want that. So the beginning of that is you got to create goodwill and what's a great way to do that? Well, you have to connect with why you fell in love in the first place for two reasons. One is the other person has to hear you say those nice words so that they're like, oh, okay, uh, this person is still being nice and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open up a little bit. The other thing is, is you yourself have to remember why you fell in love with this person, because this is a, a, a thing that Gottman actually found, John Gottman found in his research with couples, is that a sign, a major sign of divorce is when you can't remember why you fell in love with the first person in the first place. When John Gottman and his team would ask people that were married, and, you know, they would get into conflict sometimes, but they would ask people, it's like, so what attracted to you to this person in the first place? Why do you, why'd you fall in love with this person? I can't remember the exact question, but it was along those lines. And for the people who said things like, oh, well, you know, we've had our troubles, but, you know, I just, I loved the way that he, you know, was, he was a very sexy, he still is, I guess, guy. Um, he's very good with kids. He's very tender. He listens well. He's interesting and, um, you know, yeah, I, that's, I just remember really liking that about him. I really remember respecting that about him when I first met him. So for those people, they're very much less likely, very much less likely to divorce than someone who says something like, I don't remember why I don't, I think I was just young and stupid. You know, you'd hear statements like that. I, I didn't know what I was doing. I was desperate at the time. I don't know. I don't know why I fell in love with that person. I don't know why I ever began a relationship with that person. What that means, now, what John Gottman would find is like, that person is highly likely to get divorced. What that, what the inference there is that as uh, the, uh, for the person who can't remember why they fell in love with someone, they likely did fall in love for legitimate, understandable reasons in the beginning. But over the course of the conflict, they have become so hurt and so angry for such a sustained amount of time that any thought that is positive about the other person has been replaced with resentment and contempt. And any memory that is positive about that person 
any positive valence associated with that person has been snuffed out and replaced with something negative. So the person literally cannot remember why they fell in love with that person. They can't identify with any of those positive feelings because it doesn't make any sense to them. And this is another just a sidebar of just like how memory is not a recording. It's, it's an interpretation of the past. Or I should say it's an interpretation of our associations of the past. And thus can be altered. And you can ask the person, you know, from... 20 years later and they'll give completely different answers no 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 i was i was and you'll even hear people say um i was never really in love with that person um i you know i just kind of went along with it you know you hear people say it's like well she was really in love with me and so you know i just kind of went along with it it felt good to be needed i guess but you ask them when they first got married, particularly when they're up at the altar and they're talking about how much they love each other. Do you love this person? Yeah, absolutely. I, and you're like, is there a chance that you're just going along with this? No, of course not. I love this person. This is, I love her. She's the best. So before you go into mediation, you have to do something along these lines of building that goodwill. You got to remind yourself as to why you love that person. And you have to let the other person know because you, you got to loosen things up, soften it up, create that goodwill. So it's a good intervention. But what happens in this first scene of the movie is Nicole uh, says, I don't want to read it. Well, why? You know, I don't want to read my statement about, about Charlie. Why? Well, I don't like what I wrote. And then Charlie's like, well, I like what I wrote, so... You know, let's just read it. And the mediator's like, well, you know, it'd be a shame if you're, you know, if you didn't get to hear what you wrote, you know, and, and, and you both have to read it. We, you know, at this point, the, the, the mediator, and this is actually a good portrayal of, of a professional in, in this instance, is that the mediator's thinking, uh, you know, I've been through this with other couples before, and usually there's some, you know, sometimes there's some resistance, but, the mediator was intuiting in that moment that if he gave a little bit of coaxing, Nicole would read it. I mean, it's sitting right in front of her. Or at the very least, she could rewrite it and, and read it, you know, another time. But he miscalculates, uh, I think justifiably, because Nicole at some point just stands up and storms out of the, out of the office. And we're left kind of wondering why. And, I, and I, I still don't know why. You know, I, we could speculate as to why the Nicole character decided to storm out of the room. Uh, one speculation is that uh, Noah Baumbach just wanted to portray Jennifer Jason Lee in this negative light, which some people are saying. Uh, but another is that if Nicole was a real character, is that she is afraid of losing power because she, she hasn't had power in the relationship the whole time. And, Half of that is because she didn't want the power and gave the power to him. And the other is that Charlie actually took the power, you know, so she was complicit in that, in that power problem. And, uh, you know, you could say maybe Charlie was more responsible for that power problem, but Nicole played a part. And you could say that Nicole in that moment was like, for me to compliment uh, Charlie at all in this moment is, I'm worried I'm going to lose power in this mediation process because that's usually what happens when I try to negotiate anything with Charlie and I'm going to lose everything, you know? 
And she didn't really know how to deal with that. And so what she did is she just walked out. And I'll get more into assertiveness sort of development later because it plays into that. But the, the other thing is that uh, she could have been worried about criticism from Charlie. Charlie's very critical. And so she's worried that she's going to read her statement and that Charlie is going to say something like, oh, okay. She, he, he's going to give her notes on writing, you know, because Charlie's a writer and Nicole is not. And Nicole is insecure about what she's written in terms of the way it's written or something. And she's worried that he's going to criticize her. And so she doesn't want to read it. But we're left wondering why. You know, we don't really know why. She, but she seems very stubborn in the moment, very immature, if I might say, and, you know, and quite irrational and angry. You know, she could have said like, okay, well, here's why I don't want to read it. But, you know, she could have said, because if I read it, I feel like I'm going to lose power. You know, okay, let's open up that conversation. But instead of giving anyone the opportunity, the mediator, a chance to help or accommodate or figure out another solution... Nicole just storms out and and doesn't uh, and from what I can understand is Nicole never agreed to go back. And this is a pretty big moment, you know, because this is the beginning of that process where they lawyer up and all the mudslinging happens. You know, when they're in that session of mediation right at the beginning, there's a chance that they can work this out without having to waste hundreds of thousands of dollars and mudsling all, all for, you know, a, a year's time. I will say that Charlie's behavior wasn't super helpful because what Charlie could have done in that, if you've seen the movie, Charlie could have been a little bit more nicer to her, a little bit more accommodating, be like, oh, okay, well, you know, maybe there's another, maybe we don't have to read it. We could do something else. Um, But instead, Charlie's like, you know, I can read mine because I actually think mine is very well written. (laughs) He's already like kind of criticizing her by saying, I'm a writer, and I, I think mine is well-composed. You know, it's subtly critical, and it's not helpful. All right, so let's go into the personality here. So Charlie, I would call, uh, it's hard to know because, you know, movies, and they don't go into full detail, but I would say that Charlie has what, uh, avoiding attachment is, is the main conceptualization that I would have of him. There's a lot of different ways to conceptualize. You could throw narcissism in there. But I think the main umbrella uh, concept and construct that would explain and predict a lot of his behavior is what we call avoiding attachment. If you're not familiar, listen to my attachment deep dive in which I spoke for hour, I don't know, 11 hours or 14 hours or something on, on the topic. But in a nutshell, when we're young, and so it was revealed in the movie that Charlie's parents were abusive and alcoholics. And when we have, when we're mistreated growing up, we have a choice to make in terms of how we're going to deal with it. Um, And we have generally two different ways. We can believe that the self is good and the other is bad, or we can believe that the, the, the self is bad and the other is good because both will explain the situation. You can't have both people be good because if the bad situation is happening, someone has to be bad. And if, if I'm bad, then I deserve the abuse and then the world makes sense. But if the other people are bad and I'm good, then it, the world also makes sense because it's like, well, my parents are bad. That's why they're abusive. Well, to the avoidant person, they decide that the other person is bad and that, the, and that they are good. You know, the self is good. The self is good. Others are bad. And what you do with this is you develop a, a bit of narcissism, which we can see in his behavior 
you know, he, he believes he knows everything. He, um, he's very overpowering with his thoughts. He doesn't really respect Nicole's opinions. Um, that kind of thing. But there's some other elements here too, is that self-sufficient, they, they will become defensively self-sufficient. And in the movie, they talk about how Charlie was in his own world. And we also see that when he gets hurt, he kind of shuts down. And we also see they ha- that he had an affair, which um, people of, you know, preoccupied and avoiding attached, any, any insecure, insecurely attached people are more likely to have affairs because one, they want to passive aggressively get back at their spouse for things they resent and also because they uh, have a harder time um, navigating the vulnerability of a relationship and will go outside of the relationship to get needs met. Affairs usually have much more to do with emotional connection than sexual, uh, even for men, um, unstereotypically. Um, He becomes defensively controlling. You know, he knows what he wants and he's sort of threatened by her selfhood is what we've come to understand as to why they had troubles in their marriage. He, you know, as she developed her own assertiveness, he didn't really like it. And, and, and the re and so when you're avoiding attachment, that's, it's threatening to you because not because you like controlling and not because you like to put other people down, but because when, um, when your spouse doesn't have a self, they need you a lot. And when they need you a lot, then you feel so much more safe in your relationship. All this attachment uh, reactivity is because we're all trying to, to stabilize our attachments because it's, a, it's an important need of ours. It's just as important as food and water and other kinds of basic needs. We have a basic need for attachment. And when that is threatened, we will take measures to remove the threat. And when we've been taught at an early age that when, um, when other people don't need you, they might actually move away from you. And so one of the ways you can actually keep attachments very close to you is by fostering neediness, by fostering this dependency. And one of the ways that you foster dependency is by putting the other person down, by not going along with the other person's efforts to individuate, by not cultivating uh, the other person's independence of action and thought. And we see a little bit of that in the movie. And again, it's not because the person, the, the avoidant, you know, narcissistic person wants to control, but because it's a method, it's a means to an end. It's a means for attachment security. They believe they need to do that in order for that to be true. And for a lot of their relationships, it actually is true. And this is why a lot of abusive behavior, you know, quote unquote gaslighting will come into play. It's not out of evilness. It's out of desperation. And so, again, the cure is to help the avoidant narcissistic person understand that they can have security without resorting to those things and pointing out to them that when they resort to those things, it actually pushes people away in the end. Uh, He also engaged in defensive criticism. You know, there's that scene at the beginning of the movie where he's compulsively giving her notes, even though she's not going to be in the play anymore. He just, he can't help it. He just... He just has to criticize. It has all to do with that that control. And, and also this notion that the self is good and the other is bad. And so thus, um, all my thoughts are awesome. And uh, um, surely the world needs to hear my thoughts because 
my thoughts are awesome and they're better than other people's thoughts because that's what he had to, Charlie had to resort to that when he was very young as a way of defending himself against the mistreatment of, of being mistreated. Uh, he's defensively quote unquote strong avoidant people will come across as very strong. One of the universe, the more avoidant you are, the more strong people will think you are. Oh, he's so strong. He's never, he's never, you know, nothing ever rattles him. He doesn't, he doesn't, he's not needy like me, but this, this strength is uh, all a facade. The avoidant person needs more than anyone because they haven't had their needs met. But because they were decided so long ago that um, they can't depend on other people to give them their needs, not only do they not um, ask other people for things, but they also uh, don't even want to give the impression that they need anything emotionally from other people. And also practically, that's why they're very self-sufficient as well. Because when you alert other people to your neediness, one, because of your mistreatment growing up, you learn that you can actually be like severely rejected and maybe even abused if you alert other people to your needs. But also it's just more vulnerable and, and it's just more uh, ammo for life to show you that you're not going to get your needs met. It's so much easier to not, to not express your needs and one and what's an easier way what's an effective way to not express your needs well deny your needs internally so you don't even know you have needs and when you don't know you have needs then you don't feel compelled to express them and when and and then you can avoid that whole all the vulnerability and all the letdown and everything and so so it becomes this habit and you ask avoidant people you know uh what are your needs i I don't have any needs i'm fine I'm, i'm totally cool on my own uh, he's also defensively perfectionistic. This is also kind of an avoidant thing. Uh, certainly preoccupied people can be per- perfectionistic too. But he's defensively perfectionistic because he believes from an early age that in order to get love and attention and security, he needs to be very good at, his, at what he does. And he pours that all into his you know, work uh, and playing Monopoly and all that kind of stuff. By the way, it's an interesting kind of uh, Woody Allen moment where both of their observations of each other was that they're very competitive at Monopoly. So Charlie has this view of Nicole as her being very, very competitive with with Monopoly, like like too competitive, like overreactive when she loses at Monopoly. And Nicole had the exact same observation of of Charlie. Nicole's like, oh yeah, he gets a little, little competitive, little, little edgy when we're playing Monopoly. (laughs) And uh, again, you can see other people's faults much more easily than you can see yours. You're much more accommodating to your own kind of foibles. But we see that Charlie beats himself up a lot when he makes mistakes. And this is that internalized voice that he internalized from his parents. Um, Now, we also see some other elements to Charlie's personality that don't really fit in the avoidant um, side, the you know quintessential. We see him uh, being kind of dependent at times, like about his hair cutting and about other kinds of things. Like he he seems kind of like a boy at times, where he's just kind of bumbling around. Um, you know, he he sucks people in to take care of him in some ways. Uh, so he can be, in some aspects, very self-sufficient, very competent, and in other ways he can he can be very incompetent. And it just goes to show you that, you know, you can't shove anyone into one category. Uh, 
Okay, now Nicole. Nicole, there's a lot of different kinds of conceptualizations I could have for a personality. Um, you know, we could say preoccupied, but it's not really preoccupied. What I would call her is that she's on the dependent personality spectrum. Not high, but she's on the spectrum. Just like uh, she's, she's as high on the spectrum of dependency as Charlie is on the avoidance. So what do we mean by dependency? Well, as a child, she had an enmeshed mother and sister, and uh, meaning that the mom was over-involved in Nicole's life and also wasn't really attuned to Nicole. If we watch uh, the mother, she seems kind of in her own world. She seems narcissistic. She seems like she doesn't really take the time to notice what's happening for other people. Um, she was almost kind of flirting with Charlie in, in these weird ways. You'll see narcissistic people do that sometimes. Overbearing. They didn't go into full detail on that, but uh, and I don't know how much Noah Bombach intended on this to be true, but I thought they portrayed it really well. Because, you know, you walk away from the movie really liking Nicole's mom, or at least I did. But you can like a parent, and Nicole obviously loves her mother, but because sometimes people, when, when I talk about mistreatment, they'll be like, oh, you know, the classics like abuse and this kind of thing. But mistreatment can be in the midst of a very loving relationship. A parent can be very loving and very caring, and uh, you can have, quote unquote, a good relationship and still cause damage. And this is a good portrayal of it, where the mom is loving and there and secure, but she's also overbearing a little bit, and she's also not really paying attention to, to Nicole's needs, and she's also kind of inserting her needs a lot. Now, they're both adults at this point, so the grandma is free to do that, but we could sort of extrapolate what Nicole's childhood was like and how that could create dependency. So, Because basically what that does is you have someone who's not really paying attention to you. So one, you're not developing a self, so meaning that you don't know who you are and what you want and how to assert it. You're not confident in yourself. You don't feel like your own thoughts and needs are that important. And and it's not a conscious choice, but it's this felt sense of just like, well, you know, my needs are important. And and when you go to people and you say, yes, your, your needs are important, they don't really believe you because life hasn't really shown them that. So you don't really develop a self. The other thing is, is if the mom took over a lot and did a lot of things, you know, it's often out of anxiety, which is the other sort of element to the mom, I would add, is that the mom seemed anxious. And when you have an anxious mother who does too much, an anxious parent, I should say, that does too much for a child, the child will uh, not believe that they're very competent not only in the things that they do, but in the thoughts they have. And they'll just feel like, uh, I'm not good at things. I need someone else to help me out. And so you develop a dependency personality spectrum where you pathologically believe you're incompetent. You, patholo- you, have, you have pathological needs for outside control and guidance. You know, there's nothing wrong with getting outside help and guidance, but it's one thing to believe that you can't do anything. But at the flip side is the dependent person will resent the fact that other people won't give them a chance. So they're sort of stuck at the age of like, say, 7 or 10 or 13 or something, where all children will go through this moment of just like, 
they have an they have an intense awareness of the fact that they're not good at things and they feel insecure, but they also are resentful that their parents won't let them do more things. You know, every kid goes through that. Every kid goes th- goes through a moment of just like, um, okay, I'm not good at some things, but some things I'm fine at, and I should be allowed to. You know, I'm 13. I know, I know how to be safe. I should be able to stay out until 2 a.m. And navigating that individuation process is how people uh, avoid developing dependent spectrum. But when your parent is narcissistic and anxious and overbearing, then as a child, you're like, well, I have a choice. I could, I could really rebel and that could go really badly, or I could just give in to my mom's narrative. And and this is subconscious, of course, I can just give in to my mom's narrative and, and just believe I'm just not good at things because things go better that way for me. So that's dependent spectrum. And so what evidence do we see of Nicole's dependent spectrum? Well, we see that she's easily influenced. This is her big bugaboo. This is her big problem, right? She's easily influenced by her mom growing up. And then she, and then in her marriage with Charlie, this is her big complaint. It's just like, um, you know, I just did everything you did. And then she gets a lawyer who's very overbearing. And then she's affected by her lawyer. Um, In the end, she finally pushes back at her lawyer, which was an interesting kind of story arc in that way. But we see throughout the movie that she defers to other people. She defers to her mom. She defers to Charlie. She, then she defers to the lawyer. She allows them to push her around. Um, she's pleasant about it, but she deeply resents it. We also see Nicole strives to please. She likes to be in charge. You know, this is before, while they're married. She likes to be in his plays. She moved to New York. for. I mean, she, she had a, an, a career in Los Angeles as a actress and they fell in love and she accommodated him because he was very interested in doing plays in New York, which is, you know, a different sort of gig. And so she moved to New York to be in his place. She wanted to please him. And then we see scenes of the two of them, um, you know, working together and Nicole is very, you know, she's striving to do the right thing for him and not so much the other way around. We also see low self-esteem, which is very characteristic of someone with dependent spectrum. She says, you know, I, you know, I'm easily defeated, that kind of thing. We also see a lack of self. So this is, again, because the self at the age of three, four, five, and beyond wasn't really given a chance to explore who she is and what she wants, to really connect with, like, what's my core? What, who am I? And she talks about how she feels like she doesn't know what she really wants, you know, no, uh, Charlie seems to know what he wants. I feel like I never know what I want. When she's criticized, she's devastated. This is a sign of a lack of... When, when we have a self, when we can rely on something inside of us to uh, look to, we uh, are more resilient to criticism. No one is, you know, 100% resilient to criticism, but we're more resilient. Whereas when you don't have a self and someone criticizes you, you can't turn to an internal internal sense of who you are to to say, nah, I don't know about that. So that criticism is left just rattling around your head and it dominates and makes you feel really, really bad, which we see in the movie. Also, she drinks to cope. This isn't exactly uh, it's super indicative of dependency, but it can be. You know, when you lack a self, it's very distressing. You don't know what you're doing. You don't know, you're not confident in any of your choices. You don't know if you should assert yourself or give in. Um, you don't feel good about yourself. 
And one way, and so you need some way to cope, and a very effective way for people to cope is to drink all the time because it just numbs you. There's a, when they get in the big fight at the end, Charlie says, you know, you're trying to find your voice, but you don't want a voice. You just want to complain about not having a voice. So it's very perceptive of people developing a self. And I've talked about this before. There are three steps to finding a self. And I don't know if other people share these three steps, but I, I developed these three steps after working with so many people on this, so many adults. The first stage of developing a self is I am you. So this is a lack of self. This is I am you. You know, I, I am nothing and I, all I am is what you tell me I am. Or all I am is what you do. And this is when you're a baby, right? A baby doesn't have a self. The baby is um, completely dependent on the uh, parent to define their world. And and they don't have any confidence or even sometimes at certain ages, early ages, they don't even have an awareness of the fact that there is any difference between the self and other people. So as adults, this will be dependency, lack of self, this kind of thing. It's just like, you know, I I don't have a self, so I'm going to be you. And so we see a little bit of that with her and Charlie. But eventually people want to develop a self, right? So so the next step that you'll see as people will start to grow, and it's inferred, implied that Nicole, before deciding to divorce was starting to develop her own self. She started to sort of mature. And so she started thinking, Hey, you know, I deserve to have my own thoughts and my own needs and that are separate from Charlie's. And when I try to assert that he pushes back and he doesn't like that again, because of his own avoidant attachment worries. So the second step in maturity or development of a self or development in general is I am not you. I used to be you, but now I realize I'm not you. And this is second step. Sometimes we call this the terrible twos or the terrible fours or the teenage rebellion or whatever we call it. Not everyone goes through these phases, but every, everyone uh, is, uh, if they're given enough chance to explore, they will enter a phase of I'm not you. That's how I know who I am. The only way I know who I am is in relation to you. And the only way I can, and before I was you, but now I I know I'm not you. And it feels good to not be you because I'm trying to develop a self and I'm not you. And so you realize none of this has anything to do with who they are. All they can say at this point is, no, I'm not you. Everything you are, I I am the opposite. Now, this isn't actually development of self it's development of an oppositional self to another to the dependent you know object it's a wonderful phase it's necessary it's extremely annoying to other people around you because you're oppositional and if you're an adult it can be really you know when you see a two-year-old being oppositional it's like okay cute whatever you know mildly annoying but when you're 35 and all you're getting is stubborn reactions to everything. It's just like, okay, can you, what do you want then? You know, well, I don't know. All I, you know, basically all their messages are, I don't know what I want. All I know is I don't want what you got. <laughs> so there's, I'm not you. It's so we see that uh, for Nicole, she's in that phase. 
where she doesn't actually know what she wants. She doesn't really know who she is, but she just knows she's not Charlie. And that's how she's going to assert herself. This is a scenario I have seen a lot. It's a lot. I mean, I'm sort of exaggerating the description, but in more subtler ways, this scenario plays out a lot in divorce. There are a lot of people, a lot of adults walking around without a self. They're at stage one and they have perfectly normal lives and they're, you know, happy for the most part. They have underlying issues that they suffer from, but you know, they're, they're functioning and they consider themselves to be adjusted. They get married because everyone wants to, um, you know, or most people want to be attached to other people. And so, you know, they get attached and they get married, they follow the protocol and then it's, and then, and then they enter their thirties and they're getting a little older and they're starting to think, well, who am I? I've never really been given the chance to like, think about who I am and what do I want in life? I've, everything I've done has just been a reaction to other people. I've never really just had the space to like, what, what do I want? Has any decision I've ever made been done because I wanted it? I mean, I feel like every decision I've made has just been a reaction to someone else. And, you know, I have all these other aspirations that no one seems to really hear. And, and, you know, what's happening, you know, and, and whenever I'm around my spouse, I feel like I can't think straight because, you know, they always seem to know what they want. And that, and I get anxious about that, about, you know, well, what if my wants are different than theirs? And, and then sometimes I actually do voice my opinion and it always ends up in this fight. And, you know, like, I don't know, it's a very, very common scenario. The third step, the final step in this pro, in this progression is I am me and you are you. Oh, I should add that. I am me and you are you. These are, uh, the, at this stage, you say, you know, I know for the most part, as much as anyone can, I know my own thoughts, my own needs, my own feelings, and I'm confident in most of them. And I'm okay with them. I'm okay with my needs. I'm okay with my thoughts. I'm okay with my feelings. I, I have good enough self-esteem. But so do you. You also have thoughts and feelings and needs. And I'm going to consider both as I navigate my actions and my perspectives. You know, so let's, let's, let's say that Nicole was more mature and didn't have this damage. You know, for the record, both Charlie and Nicole are quote-unquote immature in this way because they're both suffering from attachment issues that related in defensiveness. Um, for Charlie, it's avoidance and narcissism, and for Nicole, it's dependency and this terrible twos reactivity. So let's rewind the clock. So let's say Nicole is, is more differentiated, has a sense of self at the beginning, but still wants to get divorced. You could say, right in the beginning, right in that first mediating session, she could just be, okay, so Charlie, um, I'm really sorry. Uh, I wrote this statement, I, but there's something about it. I don't want to read it. Uh, mediator, I, I hear that you really want us to read it, but I, I'm getting hung up on something. I can't, I don't know what it is, but I, Maybe we could explore it, but I don't want to read mine. Uh, my needs are telling me right now, I just don't want to read mine. <laughs> I don't know why. Um, maybe I'm insecure about it. I don't know. Maybe I'm just too angry to read it. I don't know, but I don't want to read it and I'm not gonna. So 
you hear the language there. Instead of storming out and saying, you know, what she says is, you know, if you two guys are done sucking each other's dicks, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's very, you know, aggressive statement. Instead of, uh, you know, so so if the need is I don't want to read my statement, you don't have to give in. Being a, you know, being mature doesn't mean you give in. It means you you know your needs. And, she, and her in that in that moment, she had a need. She didn't want to read her statement. And maybe she didn't know why. Maybe she did. But she wanted to read it. But she also doesn't have to storm out of the room. She doesn't have to insult people. She doesn't have to grind the negotiation to a halt because of her needs. That's what a terrible two does. That's what a stage two assertiveness person does. They say, I, all I know is I'm not you and fuck off. You want me to do something? No, I'm not going to do it. In fact, I'm, I'm not even going to, I'm leaving. Instead of staying and saying, I'm not going to do it, you know, I'm, I'm still not going to do it, but I'm not going to insult you. And, and I'm also going to realize that this is very disruptive. I'm really sorry that I'm, that I'm not going to read my statement. Uh, Charlie, I'm sorry to you because, you know, you wrote yours and I wrote mine and I, you had some ex- expectations. I'm sorry. And mediator, I'm sorry to you. You probably hoped that we would do this. You know, I get it, I, but I'm going to tell you, I'm not going to read it. That's assertiveness. You assert your needs and, and you, you draw your lines in the sand, but you also accommodate for other people's feelings. You, you at least verbally acknowledge what your assertiveness is doing to other people. That's what assertive. A lot of people equate assertiveness with the second stage, which is terrible twos, which is fuck off. No, that's not assertive. Assertiveness that that's that's you know I don't know establishing boundaries or some some kind of weird phrase, but it's not assertive. Assertiveness is you assert your needs while accommod- while um, considering other people's feelings appropriately. So, um, so in that way, you know, if I was to weigh in on what people are talking, people are talking about like, oh, you know, it's sort of pro Charlie and anti Nicole. Some people are, they don't think that. Uh, now I will say that it is kind of that way. Um, but I don't think it's anti Nicole. I just think that us as the viewer are invited into Charlie's internal world much more often than we're invited into Nicole's internal world. Which makes sense because Noah Baumbach is, you know, Charlie is his sort of avatar in this story. It's not the exact story that they went through by any means. But Noah is writing this story from Charlie's perspective. He's also trying to help tell both sides of the story by telling Nicole's story. But he's not really fully interested from what I can tell from the way this is written and directed that um, he really wants the viewer to be inside of Nicole's experience. There's so many more moments where you, you just you just feel connected to Charlie. And so for that reason, I would say that, you know, you walk away just feeling just sort of better about Charlie, even though he has been a supreme asshole during this movie at times. Whereas with Nicole's character, we're not really invited into that. So, you know, I, I could see that. I could, I could absolutely see that. But if I watch the movie um, for kind of the um, the portrayal of, you know, who was right, I would say that both sides are portrayed uh, equally badly and equally goodly, I would say. And from my perspective, again, you know, everyone can have their own, but that's just how I saw it. 
Now, some people say, well, Kirk, you're a man. Of course, you identify with the Charlie side. Totally possible. I don't think I'm that unaware of my own biases that I wouldn't see that. And I was, as I was watching the movie, because I knew about that controversy before I watched it, I was trying to stay as unbiased as possible. There are several moments in the movie where both characters are being unreasonable. In fact, there's a lot of times where Charlie is being more unreasonable. At least he takes it to another level. You know, when they get in the big fight, he's the one that says, you know, life with you was joyless. And every day I woke up, I wished you were dead, that kind of thing. Um, she said bad things too, like you're a villain, but, um, you know, he, he was, he, he was more unhinged. He was more abusive. Um, so, but I don't think that, uh, it, so anyway, that's just my take. (laughs) All right. So to conclude, just some lighter notes on what I liked and didn't like, I liked that the ending was relatively unhappy, but it had it was sort of bittersweet, right? I kind of like endings like that. Um, I recently watched Rosemary's Baby for the first time, and um, I don't know why I'm going to this. I guess talking about endings reminded me of it. But the Rosemary, I've, yeah, it's a travesty. I've never seen this movie, partially because I'm just not into horror. But this movie is not horror, really. It's more just psychological kind of gaslighting movie, and. The ending I thought was really just did the movie a disservice because for the first 98% of the movie, it's this mystery. You're just kind of like, well, maybe this is happening, but you know, it seems like this is happening, but maybe, maybe she's going crazy. The very end, they just sort of answer all the questions, you know, it's just like, oh, okay, well, bummer. Anyway, marriage story. Um, Like I said, I thought it was very funny. The parenting evaluation stuff was cringeworthy, funny. Um, there's just a lot of moments, a lot of little little observations about human behavior, which I think Noah Baumbach is really good at. It felt very real at times. I thought it was edited very well. There's a lot of really masterful, artful editing decisions that was made. The acting by Adam Driver is just superb. I think he should get the Oscar for this. We'll see what other kind of movies come out, but... He just does an amazing job. He's very convincing. I mean, you know, we see Adam Driver. He's Kylo Ren. He's in this other movie I watched on Amazon called The Torture Report, which is really good. You know, he's doing all these different roles. He's, you know, a major movie star now. Uh, It's hard not to see the actor behind the character. But I believed, you know, 15 minutes in that that was him. Laura Dern is just spot on, just, you know, just laser focus acting. Alan Alda, so glad to see him still at it. You could see a little tremor in in his arms. So, uh, you know, he's getting up there in age, but um, he uh, he just plays an, you know, just a great character. (laughs) Very consistent, written, directed, acted character. Ray Liotta, great to see him at it. You know, again, um, he, the very specific character, well-written, directed, edited, acted. Uh, it's been a while since I've say, seen Ray Liotta in something other than a Chantrix commercial. Uh, Julie Haggerty, although Ray Liotta was in one of my favorite movies that I keep trying to get Berto to watch called uh, Killing Them Softly. Uh, he plays a kind of a dirtbag. Julie Haggerty, the mom, she's, you know, she's been in so many things. And, you know, she usually plays, if not always, plays a sort of comedic ditz. 
But in this movie, I liked that they gave her a chance to expand that into kind of less parody and into some actual characters. I mean, I haven't seen everything she's done, but I liked that they casted uh, someone that was uh, the mistress to be more of a plain person. You know, it, it's it's so tempting for Hollywood whenever they, you know, Charlie has this woman on the side and she's younger or something. It's so much, it's so common to pick this sort of classically beautiful young thing. And there's, there's nothing wrong with classic, beautiful young things, but it's just such a trope, you know? And I think what they're, they're always trying to do, especially when we, I think when you have a male writer is you're trying to show like, well, it's pretty obvious why he had the fear. I mean, look at her. She's amazing, you know, but they casted someone that is, isn't that sort of, uh, you know, actress. She doesn't have that sort of look. She has, she has a much more normal look to her. And I, I thought that was, that was pretty cool. The music was amazing. I mean, it's just this classic score with actual melodies. I mean, I, I know I say this all the time, but, and I was actually telling Umberto this the other night was, uh, while we were walking around Greenwood, um, is that movie, uh, soundtracks have now become movie soundtracks, background music have now all become nine inch nailsified, meaning that there's no melody. It's just like, even like, um, the theme songs of TV shows, uh, like, uh, the Sopranos theme song, you can actually say going all the way back to the late nineties, you know, woke up this morning, goes his own job. Da, 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 blah, blah, blah. You know, it's all this, it's just this drony music. And even when they do kind of sneak in elements of melody, it it's like real kind of subdued, like with Game of Thrones. Like it's not it's not a classic uh, melody, you know. You know, this is the part of the podcast where I just start singing melodies, but um, this movie uh has some just has actual melodies has themes that that are played and i find that just to be so refreshing you know i, I guess it's just because i'm an oldie i just i want to hear a melody you know i want to hear some notes i want to i want to hear like an expression of a of an emotion other than tension you know blah, blah. i mean that's great there's a place for that for sure you know um but the tropes in music is, I just, it just drives me crazy sometimes. I'll see it like in um, Torture Report on Amazon with Adam Driver. It's a true story about the, I should actually do an episode about that movie, but it's about the torturing of, of detainees after 9-11. And because it's a procedural and there's the CIA and there's, you know, spies and stuff that they have to have that music where it's just like, you know, you know, if, if you've, you, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> if you haven't, you'll start hearing it. It's in every, every show that they, it's like even in good, well-written, well-directed, well-acted movies, they'll still have that, just that ridiculous, 
now, the first, you know, 15 times I heard that theme or that style of theme, I was like, oh, you know, it's an interesting kind of way to keep the tension going. But after literally like 5,000 times hearing it, it's just like, can't you come up with anything new? <laughs> um, anyway, I loved the theatrical moments. And I know Noam Baumbach, as a very precise writer, wrote these in very precisely. There's There's four different scenes that you could actually just see five seconds of each of these scenes and you know the full story the beginning is they're on the subway but they're not sitting together it's actually the you know the the title card or i don't know you call it the 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 movie poster on netflix is they're both on the subway but they're and and they're but they're not sitting together so we see that so that that gives an emotion the next scene is that they're they're pulling they're literally pulling their child between the two of them you could say it's a little cheesy but i thought it was well kind of integrated in but there's this moment where the two parents are pulling on each arm you know this child this child's like ah. this next scene is when they close this gate and that's this you know this gate to the house they managed to get it closed and charlie's on one side and uh, the kid and Nicole on the other side and the gate slowly closes and they're, they're both kind of looking at each other and it's just excellent edited and it, you know, it just tells you like, Oh, the gate is closed. And then the very end when Nicole runs up to Charlie and ties his shoe, you know, very uh, unsentimental, very typical kind of thing. No, no raised eyebrows. Uh, just this is quaint little, gesture or behavior between people that is uh, another uh, little moment so you get those four different moments and you know the story of this this story you know you know the full story the scene that they're going to play at the oscars is the esc you know the escalating fight in charlie's apartment toward the end where it starts out you know they're all fine and nice and they're actually accommodating to each other. You know, they're both, yeah, you know, you're a good parent. I'm a good parent. They're, you know, being very reasonable. And before long, it's like, you're a villain. Life with you is joyless. Every day I wake up and I hope you're dead. And Charlie's a crying heap on the floor. You know, very well-written, well, just excellent acting. Uh, again, particularly Adam Driver. The reason why I haven't mentioned Scarlett Johansson yet is because... I don't know if it's just her style of acting that kind of gets to me sometimes, but I thought she did great. And I, and I thought on the scale of things, you know, she did a seven or eight. I mean, there's certain scenes where I thought she really, you know, did well. Like when she's yelling at him on the phone, she's at a party and she, and she's, she's just yelling at him. It's, it's, you just, these little moments where, the assumptions and the hurt that each of them are going through that escalates into anger. And, you know, you just really kind of get that, that realness. Um, Scarlett Johansson did a, just an amazing job at that. When she's crying about his criticism in the beginning, just, you know, just heart wrenching. And you really feel like Scarlett is in that character. But there's another number of other moments where I just don't really believe that Scarlett Johansson is that character. There's, there's a certain way that she acts where when she's being more kind of normal, I guess, or just more uh, casual, 
where I I feel like she's reading lines as opposed to being in the character. And as I say this, I realize I'm kind of being like Charlie where I'm criticizing her acting, which doesn't feel good to me. But, but you know, I, I, actors do different things. You know, some people hate um, what's-her-face from all those movies in the 90s, uh, you know, from... Um, Jerry Maguire, what was her name? Anyway, the purse lips gal. <laughs> Some people hated her acting. I thought, she, I never hated her. Some people hate Tom Cruise as an actor. I think he's actually really good. Um, so, you know, art is art and interpretations. So I'm not going to say that my observations are universal any, by any means. But, but yeah, I, I wasn't super keen on, on her acting. I, you know, I've seen so many excellent movies with her in it, at, at, you know, you know, outside in in the MCU movies, she can't. She's not really given a chance to act in those movies. But you know, the Avengers movies. But um, and she's been in a lot of really important roles over the years. I mean, Ghost World starting out. I remember seeing that um, when she was a kid. Uh, she was in that Woody Allen movie, and she was really good in that. You know, she, but there's sometimes when I just feel like she just doesn't know how to act without being big i guess maybe that's what i'm seeing anyway um so a little bit about her actually that i read is that during the shooting of this movie she was actually going through a quote-unquote messy divorce herself so a little bit about her she knows a lot about divorce so she was actually married to ryan reynolds in the late 2000s she was in a she was in a four-year relationship or maybe even just three years with ryan reynolds and they got divorced in 2011 then she was with some guy some not a famous guy but an owner of an advertising agency i think he was french she was with him for a long time uh for what looks to be like seven or eight nine years and they got divorced recently and while she was going through that divorce is when she was making this movie and so it hit home to her maybe she was channeling that a little bit now uh as of you know end of 2019 early 2020 is she's involved with colin jost who is saturday night live co-head writer he's also the guy who does the news um, and they're engaged so she knows divorce right uh, other things I didn't like about this was I was, you know, again, it was sort of focused on Charlie's story. I wish it was, I wish it did a better job of bouncing back and forth because the movie was clearly trying to tell both sides of the story. And I wish, I just wish Noah Baumbach would have spent a little bit more time kind of giving Nicole's character a little bit more breathing room, a little bit more identification if Nicole had more breakdowns or something. But, you know, now that I think about it, that is kind of typical, you know, that in the beginning, Nicole is the one suffering. And then she crosses the Rubicon. She's like, I'm done. And then from that point on, then it's time for Charlie to suffer. And that's actually very common for divorce is that you will, uh, the, for the Nicole person, the person who is contemplating divorce, they'll do it for years. You know, I'll, I'll be with clients for years while they contemplate divorce. I should do it. I shouldn't. Uh, I'm going to do it this weekend. Okay. I told them, okay, we decided to rebuild the relationship. Okay. We're going to take some time off. Okay. We're back together. So 
but even without all that back and forth externally, internally, they'll have a lot of strife as well, a lot of, a lot of vacillation. You know, the, I've worked with people who were sure they were going to divorce their spouse, and they don't tell anyone except for me for like three years. Very common. It's just such a pain in the ass to get divorced. And plus, like, unless you have some overarching grand reason, like you're being abused, then, which isn't usually the case, then it's like, it's hard to know if you're making the right choice. Like, what if I'm making the wrong choice, especially when you have kids involved? So what will happen is that that person will suffer a lot up until the time that they actually finally say, I'm done. Because by the time they say I'm done, they've, they've sort of resolved a good amount of their grief and loss around the marriage ending. But for the person who was now informed, they have now begun that process, and now it's their turn to suffer. And so I guess they portrayed that pretty well. The fingering scene was a lot. If you remember from the movie when she, you know, starts dating again and she's just like, okay, um, I just want to, I just want you to finger me. That's all I want. I want sex. I just want you to finger me. And the guy's like, uh, okay. It was, you know, weird scene. I, I, I kept waiting for it to pay off later. Like, why was that scene in there? Like what, what's going on there? I don't know, maybe this is Noah's way of trying to sneak in some kind of dig at Jennifer Jason Lee. I'm not really quite sure, but I mean, I guess I get the point if the point was that new awkward sex happens with awkward people after divorces, which is definitely common. So maybe that's what they're trying to get. I'm not really quite sure. Or she was like, I don't want to have any more kids or I want to take things slow or I really just like fingering because it's... Um, is, you know, more pleasurable to me than intercourse. I mean, but they didn't go into any explanation. They, you know, it was just a very quick scene. And so I, you know, it's just kind of, it can only lead to speculation as to what was the point of that scene. We definitely didn't need it. Do you know what I mean? The last question I have about this movie was the couple at the beginning of the movie, they come back from a show and the babysitter is on the couch, the kid's in bed. So they come in, the babysitter's on the couch, and the babysitter's like, oh, I didn't expect you home so early. She stands up, and she's, she's buckling her pants. So the babysitter, it, this woman, is sitting on the couch watching TV, and the couple comes home early. She's surprised. She stands up. Oh, I didn't know you come home. And she's buckling her pants. She's like, like her pants were on, like, what was she doing on the couch with their pants undone? <laughs> like, and I remember, and the couple didn't, you know, didn't say anything. And they clearly saw it, you know, it was right there in front of them. And I was just like, and I, and I turned to Stacy. I was like, what, what's up with her belt? And Stacy's like, well, maybe she was, she ate a lot and she was unbuckling her, her belt because she was full, which, you know, okay. I could see that happening, but why was it in the script? You know, it like again i kept waiting for that to pay off i was like is anyone gonna are we gonna come back to that story like is there some reason as to why the babysitter's sitting on the couch with her belt unbuckled and no one's gonna say anything about that <laughs> i don't know maybe it's just noah bomback's way of like sprinkling in these little details that kind of give it this realness and you know sometimes you don't know why things happen which i'm perf- perfectly happy with but i just think it was odd did you think it was odd? What did you think about this movie? Were you pro-Nicole? Were you pro-Charlie? Were you right down the middle? Let me know. Comment or email me at contact at Psychology in Seattle or go to our website. That's the best way I like people to contact me is go to the website, go to the contact us page. 
psychologyinseattle.com and, and contact me through that. If you contact me through any other way, I can't guarantee that I will even see it, honestly, because I don't have time to check all of, you know, we're on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and YouTube and Patreon and, you know, there's probably other things I'm forgetting, but I don't have time every day to, or, and sometimes things get lost. So anyway, but let me know what you think. Were you pro one side? Were you pro the other? Did you have a different take on the personalities? What's going on? What are your thoughts? Let me know, because I think this movie's pretty good. Do you think they should win an Oscar? And please take care of yourself, because you deserve it. You really do. 